if you turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and let's pray. Father, I just ask you, Lord, that once again you'll be here with us and you'll speak clearly to us, Lord, and encourage us. And I just ask, Lord, you'll help us all here to grasp the truth that you have a grasp on us. And that's our prayer. That's my prayer today. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read the first seven verses. And it says, Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. So our focus today is going to be on verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that verse should be one of the most encouraging verses that you will ever read. It spells out the nature of our salvation in one concise sentence. And it's this simple. What God begins, he finishes. What God starts, he completes. And God does not forsake the works of his hands. Once he started something, Psalm 138.8 says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. We know from this verse, and we'll see from the whole Bible, that God has no unfinished projects. No unfinished projects. So he's not like us, because we'll start a lot of things that we don't finish, like a book, a movie, maybe our supper projects. We all have projects that we don't finish. You can think of a lot of things that you've started, but you haven't finished. That's just the way we are. But God is not like men. There is nothing that he starts that he doesn't complete. And Paul knows that. He's sure that. That's why he says, I am confident of this very thing. And that word confident means I am certain. I am sure. And that word is really where we get our word persuaded. It's sometimes translated faith. In other words, he's weighed out what he's seeing, and it's given him this assurance. He's seen the work that God has done at this church in Philippi. He knows how God just works in general, and he comes to this settled certainty. I'm confident. Settled certainty. I'm confident. I'm sure. I'm certain that God has started a work in you people in Philippi. That's what he's telling him. And that being the case, because I know that he will finish it. No doubt about it. And Paul knew that when God begins a work of grace in a person's life, he will not stop until it's done. Because to put it this way, God is not the author of unfinished business. And that should be a great encouragement. Now listen, his confidence that he has, it's not based on the members there at that Philippian church. His confidence is based rather on what? It's based on the character of God. 
His power and His plan of salvation. And that's where our confidence needs to be, that we're going to make it. It's not on our goodness, not on our resolve, but our confidence that we are going to make it to the end is based on the power and the love of God. And we're going to see that today. And I read a a survey of this seminary. They took a a survey of these seminary students. 80% of these students, these are guys studying to be in the ministry. 80% of them lacked assurance of their salvation. Now, that's pretty bad, isn't it? But that's more common than you think. It may be more common in here than we think. And I think that comes from a lack of understanding of this great truth that what God starts, he finishes it. Because that causes a lot of us to be concerned, worry, and insecure about our salvation. Because here's what happens. We tend to look at ourselves, and we, we feel that we have a temperature, and we take our spiritual pulse, and then we decide after checking out our condition that we just might not make it. Because we think, well, man, every time something happens, I don't react right. I'm, maybe I'm not a Christian. Some people question it because of things like that. But all that does when you don't have that assurance, when you don't have that knowing that God is going to complete that work in you because he's began it and it's ongoing now, that just hinders your spiritual growth big time. Causes you not to draw near to God and it makes you afraid to step out in the things of the Lord. Chuck Swindoll said this, he says, how do we live with worry and stress and fear? How do we withstand these joy stealers? And he says, let me be downright practical and tell you what I do. He said, first, I remind myself early in the morning and on several occasions during the day that God, you are at work, you are in control, and Lord God, you know this is happening, whatever it is. And you were there at the beginning, and you will bring everything that occurs to a conclusion that results in your greater glory in the end. And he says, then and then only do I relax because he's put everything in God's hands. So we have to know he's begun a work in us and he's going to bring it to completion. We don't have to strive to bring it to completion. He'll take care of that. And sometimes I think we can feel like we may be an abandoned project. God may have been working in us at one time, but it's cast to society. He's working on somebody else. If we're his If you know you're his, that is never the case. Never the case. Ask Peter. Peter probably thought he was a cast off project at one time. Ask David. Ask Manasseh. If God's going to cast you off, if you're his, ask any saint. We may have setbacks. We may have chastisements. We may have failures. But we need to know that what God begins, he finishes. Grasping that truth is foundational to our joy, our peace, and our happiness as Christians. I like this, what Matthew Henry said about this verse. The confidence of Christians is the great comfort of Christians. The confidence that God's going to finish that work at you is the great comfort of Christians. I thought that was good. What gave Paul this great confidence? Well, let's look through this verse six. He says, is being confident of this very thing. The first thing he says is that he which has begun a good work. First thing that gives him confidence, it is God that begins the work. He is the one who initiates everything, doesn't he? Paul doesn't say the Philippians began their own salvation. It wasn't their idea to gather as a church 
And we're going to get saved and gather as a church and have this meeting. It wasn't the Philippians that began it, was it? And he doesn't even say that he's the one that began the good work in them, even though God used him as a mighty instrument to bring salvation there. He was an evangelist with signs, but he doesn't claim any credit for what happened there. There's a lot that happened. We'll see that in a minute in Philippi, because Paul knows that he is only a weak earthen vessel. You know, in Acts 14, when Paul and Barnabas, when they come back from their first missionary journey, it says they gathered the church together, and when they gathered them together, it says they rehearsed all that God had done with them, and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. So it's he that has begun a good work in you. It wasn't Paul that began this work in Philippi, or here, or anywhere, or in your heart. It was who? It was God. It was God. God sovereignly began that work at Philippi. How did salvation come to them? I don't want to turn to it. You can read it on your own if you want to, but it was Paul's second missionary journey that brought him to Philippi. Remember him and Barnabas had a falling out, and so Paul takes Silas with him. And you remember, they pick up Timothy along the way, and eventually Luke joins them. It's all four of them. Luke joins them when they cross the Aegean Sea. But they want to preach the word. They're going along here, Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they want to preach the word in Asia. We're saying God's directing everything. He begins everything. They want to preach the word in Asia, and what does it say? The Holy Spirit says, "Mm -mm, you ain't going there. Just keep going west, young man. And then they wanted to go north to Bithynia. Mm-mm, you're not going north. And so they just keep going west. You look on your little map in the back of your Bible. Don't do it now. But look at it later or tonight. And you'll see it takes them to Troas, right on the coast of the Aegean Sea. And they're sitting there waiting. They don't know what to do. They've come to a dead end. What happens is that night, Paul has a vision. Now listen, Paul didn't create the vision. It wasn't like, you know, he went to the Troas Papa John's and got some bad pepperoni pizza and had a vision. God gave him the vision while he was sleeping. Amen? That's what happened. And what did Paul see in this vision? He's sitting here in Troas, and all of a sudden in this vision it says he sees a man in Macedonia standing there and says, come over to Macedonia and help us. Well, I wasn't going to be a land journey. They had to take a boat over there. The word implies in the Bible that Paul and Silas, they conclude because God's forbidding them. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how the Holy Spirit told them, don't go to these places. But somehow he did, and they knew it was the Holy Spirit. So don't go up there. They're saying, well, he's telling us not to go up here, but you're having this vision that I think we need to get on over there to Macedonia. So they made plans like right away to get on a ship. And they get on this ship across the Aegean Sea, and guess what they became? The first missionaries on European soil. That's where they landed. And they come. Their second city they go to is the major city. It's the chief city of Macedonia, Philippi. Now, I've been to Philippi. It's not much of a city now. It's mostly just a lot of ruins. But back then, it was a bit more of a major city. The Bible says, Acts 16 tells us, they stay there a couple days. And it says on the Sabbath, they go outside of the city and they go to a river. And I've seen that river and it's just a little trickle now. I don't know what it was back then, but it isn't much now. But he went there because he knew that there would be women there praying. And so Paul shares the gospel with these women as they sat there. And it said there was a certain woman named Lydia and she was listening. And as she was listening, it says the Lord 
opened her heart. It doesn't say she's just impressed by Paul and his personality and decides to be a Christian. No, this is all under the heading of God begins. He's the one that begins the good work. He sent Paul there, brings him to that river, and it says he opens Lydia's heart. God opened her heart. He began that good work. He's directing them to the city of Philippi. Opens the heart of Lydia to understand and believe the gospel. And not only her, but her whole household. God's bringing salvation there. He's got those people ready. The next thing you read, you have the girl with the spirit of divination. She comes in the picture. She's just following them. You are the men of the Most High God. And, and just aggravates Paul. And I think he was stirred up by the Holy Spirit to where he finally, in the name of Jesus Christ, commands that spirit to come out of that girl. And the power of God delivers that girl. That slave girl. Now, she was worthless to those guys that were using her before. You know what I think she did? She's like, well, you know what? This guy set me free. I think she probably joined the church. It doesn't say that, but I think she probably does. But regardless, them delivering that girl landed Paul and Silas in jail with their backs beaten. We all know that. And as they're singing and praying, who sent an earthquake? God did. That earthquake didn't happen because Paul's singing was that bad. No, God <laughs> sent an earthquake. He did. And the Philippian jailer is converted. Here's the point of going through all that. And this is the letter to the Philippians and Paul's saying, being confident of this very thing, that he, God, which began a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We can see through that story, you go back and read Acts 16, from beginning unto the end, who began the good work in Philippi individually and corporately because that church was started then who began the work god did it all didn't he he did it all and paul is telling them and us that our salvation the work of our salvation is god's work from beginning to end and if he begins it paul is saying i am absolutely convinced i'm assured that he will go on with it until it's completed that's what our verse says doesn't it and that's where our assurance comes from. He's saying, I know what happened to you, Lydia. I know what happened to you, servant girl. I know what happened to you, Mr. Jailer. I saw clearly how God directed me to you, how he anointed me, how he opened your heart, how he even brought an earthquake to bring you to the point of saying, what must I do to be saved? This hardened jailer brought you to your knees. He began that work, Paul's saying. I witnessed it. I saw it. He says, I know this, whenever God has his hands on a person's life like that, he will never let go. And you all know in here whether he's had his hand on you like that and brought you to him. And if he has, that's where we should be rejoicing. He will finish that work. You're thinking, well, how can I know if God's begun that good work in me like Lydia, the jailer and Paul? And the servant girl, how can I know that that happened to me? Well, one thing is, you look at all those cases, you know what? The jailer was just planning on being a jailer. Lydia was just going down by the river to do her praying, wasn't she? That servant girl was just doing her divination. But what happened? God invaded their lives. It's just like Paul on the road to Damascus. He invaded their lives. Has God invaded your life? You know, that has to be what happened to one degree or another. 
We don't have to get knocked down to the ground like Paul. You got four different cases there. Lydia just says he opened her heart to hear the gospel. But he sure changed the course of her life. Changed the course of all of them. Has he done that for you? Has the Holy Spirit ever shown you that you were lost? Have you ever desired to be cleansed and come to God for forgiveness? Do you have a desire for God? Do you have a desire to live for Him? How do you know if God's begun a good work? This is how you know. These are some good indicators. Are you aware that you have a new nature, new desires? The things you used to love to go after and <laughs> that was where your pleasure was found? It's all changed? Has that happened to you? Because that's what conversion is all about. You enjoy reading your Bible? Do you pray? And have you definite answers to prayer? Do you have an increasing hatred of sin and a desire for holiness? Do you have a desire to live to please God and be well-pleasing in His sight? And you're like, well, it's not like I'd like it to be. I didn't say that. I didn't say imperfection, but is that desire there? Do you have, is that your life? That's just the basics of what a Christian is. And I'm saying if that has happened to you, if you do have those desires, if those things has happened to you, then that's because God has placed them in you and He has begun a work and He will continue to do that good work until it's brought to completion. That's what this verse is telling us. And it's either true or it's not, but that's the way it is. It says here, being confident of this very thing, that He which has begun a good work. What is that good work that He's begun in us? It's nothing less than to be made into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And you know, sometimes you need to just sit when you're by yourself and think about it, because that is clearly what the Bible says, isn't it? And we sing the song here, to be like Jesus. All I want is to be like Him. We sing the song, we know the verses, but is that really for me? You need to think, that is what He's promised me when you're quiet sometime. Now, I think sometimes we think being like Jesus, being holy, is just going to take all the fun out of our lives. But I'll tell you, I don't think Jesus was a gloomy person. I really don't think he was. When you read the Gospels, we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, and you read about the life of our Lord, and you see his compassion, his kindness, his patience, his power, his faith, and his peace, and so on. Don't you think in reading that, I would like to be like that? I'd like to be like that. That's what we should be thinking, right? Amen. You know, I'd like him to be my friend that I fellowship with. That's the kind of person God will make us. We just have to trust him to do that. And he's telling us that in this verse. He's saying, you're mine. And I'm going to make you like him. That is the good work I'm doing in you. To make us like him. And Jesus is glorious, isn't he? Wow, I just think that's out of our realm. But Romans 8 says, and we know that all things, familiar verse, work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Those that will allow God to do a work in them through His Spirit and by His Word will not be disappointed when the day of Jesus Christ comes and that work is completed. 
Another familiar verse, we all like to say God loves us and we like to bask in his love. Well, here's what it says. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Amen. Therefore, the world knows us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And he goes on to say, and every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. We're the sons of God. We're going to see him as he is. That should be our motivation to purify ourselves, to be pure even as he is pure. And the next thing we see here is that this good work takes place where? In you, in us. God is at work in his people. It's a deep work that's taking place on the inside because it's easy to major on the outside things. And what I mean by that is, you know, I'm not going to celebrate Christmas. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to watch explicit movies and on and on and on. And you think, that was hard for me to give up. Well, listen, that's easy in comparison to when God is dealing with you on the inside and your attitudes all the attitudes, those are hard. Our evil, wicked attitudes and the setbacks that we have, those are the things that tend to discourage us. But we need to remember this, that God is more concerned with changing our attitudes and bringing us to a place of holiness than He is with our comfort. We always want our comfort at any cost. And that can be, God dealing with our attitudes can be a slow, painful process. A long process. And here's where the life of Jacob perfectly illustrates how God is more concerned with changing our attitudes and bringing us to a place of holiness than he is with our comfort. Think about that. His grace began a work in Jacob and it stayed with him until he was done. Because Jacob started off how? You read the early days of Jacob, he was a schemer. Wouldn't trust him with my bank account. Took advantage of his brother when he was extremely hungry to get his birthright. Deceived his father to get the blessing. The blessing of the firstborn. And God had to do a work in him. He had a bad example by his mama and daddy. And God had to do a work in Jacob. And he had to do that. He had to put him through a furnace of discipline that took a while. You think about this. If you think about it, he was sent as a young man up north, his mom says, when Esau cools down, I'll send and you can come on back home. Guess what? She never saw him again. He spent the greater part of his life in exile away from his father and mother that loved him. His mom loved him a lot. He was deceived by Laban because the schemer got schemed, didn't he? And not just serving seven years for that beautiful young lady, he had to serve 14 to get both of them, both of the wives he ended up having, 14 years. And he said that Laban, not only that, he changed my wages 10 times. And I doubt if they were pay increases ever. He said they changed his wages 10 times. And then later, Joseph, his favorite son, is taken from him for a season. He thinks he's murdered. Thought he perished. God did a long processing work in this man to bring him to be the saint he was. And when Jacob was brought before Pharaoh after Joseph came to power, 
Joseph's like, come on, dad, you got to come on down here, the rest of you, and live with us here. And so he brought his dad before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh asked Jacob, he says, how old are you? And here was Jacob's answer. The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. And he adds this, few and evil have the days of the years of my life been. Because God put him through the ringer. Because he had to do a work in him. Is that how you feel today, maybe, about your Christian life? Few and evil have been my days. They've been pretty rough. But just remember, God didn't give Jacob a comfortable life, but he gave him a wonderful end. He did. Jacob's one of the pillars. He is. And all the pillars in the temple, in the church, in the Old Testament, they all started off and had to have a work done in them. Moses, 40 years on the backside of that desert, had to have a humbling process done. He was being trained to be a prince. And he had to go through 40 years of humility. This is what we need to keep in mind. This work taking place in us will be worth it. Because like the song says, when it's all been said and done, all my treasures will mean nothing. Only what I've done for love's reward will stand the test of time. Lord, your mercy is so great that you look beyond our weakness and find purest gold in miry clay, making sinners into saints. So you think, man, is that what he does to somebody he loves? Because God loved Jacob. He did. Not because he was lovable. He was not lovable at all, just the opposite. But God set his love on Jacob when? In eternity past. Because it says in Romans 9, before Jacob or Esau, either one was born, before either one had a chance to do any good or evil, God had set his love on Jacob. Set his love on him. Jacob have I loved, it says, and Esau have I hated. But Jacob have I loved, that happened in eternity past. So when he came on this earth, Jacob didn't know it. He's the schemer. But God's like, that schemer right there is going to be a monument to my grace. It's going to be painful for him, but I'm not letting him go. I started a work in him. I'm going to bring it to completion. And he did. Did a work in him. God's saints don't begin as saints. Did you? I didn't. Far from it. It's a process to make ain'ts into saints, as they say. We, we went through those Gospels. You can look at the disciples. You know, they're full of doubt, they're full of pride, they're full of ambition, they're full of anger. And yet the Lord, what? He doesn't cast them off, does he? When he called them and they are the called, he sticks with them, doesn't he? He has to rebuke them, he has to correct them, he has to warn them, he has to comfort them. But he began a good work in them. And he brings it to completion, doesn't he? Sovereignly, that's what he does. And that should be an encouragement to us. Amen. Well, that's the fourth point there. Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you, it says he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He'll be brought to completion. That word for will perform it, that's what it means to bring to completion. The New Living Translation says he will continue his work until it is finally finished. The TLB Translation says we'll keep right on helping you grow in his grace until his task within you is finally finished. And you'll be like, I'll be glad when it's done. 
And I think sometimes to think that he's going to actually finish the work in us can be hard to believe. It can be. Spurgeon said this, every Christian will in time have spiritual cares. Jesus Christ has begotten us again to a lively hope, but you fear your faith will die. You hope that you have some spark of spiritual joy, but dark and dreary nights lower over you, and you fear that your lamp will die out in darkness. You have been victorious, but you tremble that one day you might fall by the hand of the enemy. Have you ever had to deal with those doubts and fears? You ever wonder if God is going to complete the work in you that he's promised to do? Let me end by giving you three reasons how we can know that we can be sure that his work will be completed. Three reasons. Besides this verse, this verse is a great reason, isn't it, Joanne? I told you you were prophesying. She was prophesying about this message. God did a work in her. He's going to finish this one, she said. And that's amen to that. So number one, the first reason is there's nothing that God has purposed to do that he is unable to complete. Nothing he's purposed to do that he is unable to complete. Isaiah 46, 10 to 11 says this. God says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. And listen to what he says. Indeed, God says, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I also will do it. And what's he saying? Everything that God has determined, designed, or resolved to do has happened because there is not anyone or anything that can stop him. When he determined, for instance, to deliver his people out of Egypt, Pharaoh and all those gods, they were powerless against the Lord. When he decides he's going to part the Red Sea, there is nothing can stop that from happening. And on and on and on. It's an unfailing plan. Psalm 57, 2 says, I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. Nothing can keep him from, from fulfilling his will. What he's going to do in our lives is where we're applying it today, right? Our salvation. You know, when the Lord appeared to Gideon, if you remember, Gideon was hiding in fear. He's hiding in fear. He's afraid. And the Lord said to him, the Lord is with you, Gideon, thou mighty man of valor. He said two things to him. The Lord's with you and you're a mighty man of valor. And Gideon didn't believe either one of them. He sits there, you read the account, he argues with the Lord about why neither one of them is true. God, you're obviously not with us. We keep getting pilfered every year. All their crops get stolen every year. And I'm the least in my father's family. We're a nothing family. And you're saying, yeah, I'm a mighty man of valor and I'm sitting here in fear? Nothing can keep God's purposes from happening. It didn't matter whether Gideon believed it or not because God had purposed it. So after Gideon gives all of his explanations on why what God told him wasn't true, the Lord tells Gideon, he says, you don't understand, Gideon. I'm God. He adds a surely in front of it the second time. He says, surely I will be with you and you shall smite the Midians as one man. Because God had determined with Gideon, he began a work in him. And what he said, that I will be with you and you will be a mighty man of valor, 
Gideon had to get on board with that, didn't he? It took a little bit of processing. There were some fleeces and some prayers and some signs and wonders, but it happened, didn't it? The very thing God said came to pass despite Gideon. And sometimes God deals with us and brings us along the way despite ourselves, doesn't he? From beginning to end. It's like a guy said, my work in God's work in salvation, my part of it was I was running away from him as fast as I could. And God's part was he ran after me and grabbed me. <laughs> Didn't he? That's what he did to me. Praise the Lord. God's purpose never changed with Gideon. Only thing that changed was Gideon. <laughs> and that's what's going to happen to us. His purpose for us, if you're his child, it'll never change. We're going to be conformed into the image of Christ. His purpose isn't going to change. Yes, what's going to change? Us. Praise the Lord. <laughs> the second reason I want to give here that we can be sure that his work will be completed is of God's unlimited power. Is there any limit to God's power to keep him from exercising his grace in your life? Any limit? Is there any limit to God's power to keep him from fulfilling his will, his purpose for your life? John 10 says this, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. The question is, have you heard the voice of the shepherd and are you following him? Then Jesus says, if you have, and that's the case, then you're in his hand and he's got a hand that nobody can pry open and snatch you away. In other words, he's got you covered. You, know, you ever play that game with your kids where they got some little toy when they're little and you get it in your hand and, you know, they're trying to get it out. Sometimes they'll get one of your fingers. Up. God's saying no one can come and open my fingers up and get you out. That's what he's saying. That's his power. His power. First Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. Now we had no hope before. He's begotten us, born us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept, how? By the power of God, through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So listen, we're kept by the power of God. Now we have to exercise faith. Even that is a gift from God in His grace, isn't it? But in Philippians 2, it says, It is God who works in you both to will, and that's your faith, and to do of His good pleasure. It's all of grace. But it's all of God's power holding us, isn't it? But that's why we're secure. This writer, Kent Hughes, says, as I reflect on my 50 plus years in Christ, it is indeed God who has kept me. It is not my grip on God that has made the difference, but his grip on me. You all believe that? I believe that. He says, I'm not confident in my goodness. I'm not confident in my character. I'm not confident in my history. I'm not confident in my perseverance. He said, but I am confident in in God. And isn't that what we're seeing today in that promise? That's what he's telling us in John 10. If God began a work in you, then you are in his grip. Amen. Amen. And you're not going to go out of it. Amen. 
not going to go out of it. And the third reason, the last reason we can know that that work will be completed in us, we said nothing that God has purposed will not come to pass in God's unfailing power, his unlimited power. And the last reason is his unfailing love for us. Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Paul says again, for I am persuaded, I'm confident of this, that neither death. So some people, they're afraid of dying. He's saying death isn't going to separate you from the love of Christ. Old age and death, and maybe your memory, that's not going to separate you from that. Nor death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. And we got a lot of things coming that are going to try to separate us from the love of Christ. And he says it won't happen, Paul says. I'm persuaded nothing. He says nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And listen, it happens too many times today that a husband will walk up to a wife and look her in the eye and say, I don't love you anymore. Or a wife will walk up to her husband and say, I don't love you anymore. But I heard a guy say, for a child of God, they will never hear those words from their father's lips. Talking about your heavenly father. Never hear those words. I don't love you anymore. And that's the way it is because God's love for his people never ends. And it never wavers. Doesn't end like some marriages do. So Jeremiah 31.3 says this, God says, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, he says, with loving kindness have I drawn you. When did his love for Jacob ever end? It began in eternity. And Jacob was not a lovable creature. Wasn't even saved. Yet God still loved him and his hand was on him all through his life. Never ends. And that's the way it is for us. Psalm 138.8, I quoted this at the beginning, but here's the whole verse. Psalm 138.8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. That's a great promise right there. Lord, your faithful love endures forever. Do not abandon the work of your hands. And that verse tells us three things, doesn't it? The first thing when he says, Lord, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for us, that's our confidence, isn't it? God says he will fulfill his purpose for us that he began. And then it gives us the reason that we can have that hope. He says, Lord, your faithful love, it endures forever. It won't stop. And that leads to the prayer, confident prayer. Do not abandon the work of your hands based on your promise. That's what he says. God never, ever fails to finish what he started. Is that important for us to know? That's imperative for us to know. When that work is completed, the day of Jesus Christ, which is what it says at the end of that verse, you and I will be so glad that he worked in us, kept chiseling away at us, even though it hurts many times, doesn't it? Many times it hurts. And we'll just be thankful that God didn't quit on us. Think about this. What if that guy... It was actually like 400 men, I think. But the main guy that worked on Mount Rushmore quit chiseling after a couple of years. 
there wouldn't be three million people a year coming to look at it now. You know how long it took him to finish Mount Rushmore? 14 years. So what if he killed after a couple years? And God is chiseling away on us, and we don't want him to stop short, do we? He's not going to leave us as an incomplete monument. That's not the way he works. He'll chisel us and keep chiseling us until he sees the image of his son. And like Mount Rushmore, what will we be when he's all done? We'll be monuments, except not monuments to the U.S. government like Mount Rushmore. What will we be? We'll be monuments to the grace of God. We'll be so glad when it's all over. Not because it's all over. We'll just be so glad. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're going to end with this verse right here, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 7, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And here is why. Here's why. That in the ages to come, he's talking about eternity, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We're going to be monuments of the exceeding riches of his grace. Oh boy, and we will be so thankful for that, believe me to the praise of the glory of His grace that got us through. Amen. Amen. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask You, Lord, that You'll forever impress on all of Your people's heart in here, Lord, that the work You've started, they don't have to be insecure about it, that You will finish. We have a responsibility, Lord, but it's You that works in us both to will and to do of Your good pleasure. We just are so thankful for that, Lord, and, and uh, I ask if there's anyone in here today that you haven't begun that work yet, that you'll impress upon their hearts that they need to come to you, that today is the day of salvation, and today that work can begin, to just surrender to you and repent. We just ask you'll speak to them about that, and we thank you for your presence here and speaking to us today and encouraging us in Jesus' name. Amen.